Hello, welcome. My name's Nkechi Ananike. I'm a college student from Minnesota, and you are listening to The Eye of Cinema. So, Walt Disney and Pixar Animation Studios. Two studios that gave people, like myself, amazing stories and iconic characters that bring joy and nostalgia. However, their films can confuse some people into thinking that some of them are coming from the same place. Even though Pixar is owned by Disney, but you know, Pixar films are still Pixar films, and Disney films are still Disney films. Kind of like Cars on Lilo and Stitch, not gonna lie. Uh, at least when I was a kid. Nonetheless, they are distinct studios with different track records. Dis- well, Disney loves to tug on your nostalgia, while Pixar gives you the crying Olympics. Now, Pixar has the better track record compared to most animated studios like literally every single one, like DreamWorks, Disney itself, uh, Illumination, you know, others. But they are not perfect. They mess up. And since most of their films are good and even great, to the point of even, even masterpieces, it is easy to see where they lost their edge. There was a film that I watched as a child about a red-headed princess with blue eyes to find parental figure to change her fate and also not conform to gender roles. That film was called Brave. Brave is a 2012 computer, computer animated film by Pixar featuring their first female lead with a fiery scars princess named Merida before like films like Inside Out, Finding Dory, and Incredibles 2, where they also feature female leads as well, and their very first and as of currently and only female director, Brenna Chapman with also another director named Mark Andrews. I'll talk about how that worked out, how all that worked, and when I get to talk about the production. But at this point in Pixar's life, this is kind of where they really started losing their edge, especially in the early, especially in the 2010s. So let me just get a rundown about uh, Pixar's filmography real quick before I get to talking about Brave. So the 2010s start off with Toy Story 3, which is a sequel, one, another sequel to uh, Toy Story. And that, came, that movie came out in 2010. Then in 2011, Pixar brought out Cars 2. And I think it's fair to know that is not that great of a sequel, let alone just a film itself coming from Pixar. Then we have Brave. And, uh... <sighs> you know, it, it didn't pay that much better either. And no, I'll get to well, as of why. But for a Pixar film, you ha- honestly have high expectations, especially from this particular studio with a great track worker who proved that they are masters in visual storytelling and creating great characters. Kind of like Hayao Miyazaki from Studio Ghibli. However, Brave is a movie that tells a story that is bland and mediocre at best. I was disappointed in the wasted potential with room for improvement. This is a film that does not live up to Pixar's standards or deliver the story the film promises from its trailer, which leads to my main th- my main statement. Brave is an infuriating disappointment. Now, full disclaimer here, I will be spoiling the entire movie, so if you have not watched this film, then I don't really recommend you listening to this episode. I really kind of think it makes sense, more sense if you actually watch the film first before actually like listening to this episode. So, you know, just kind of do that real quickly if you can. And if not, well, I guess just keep on listening. And then, you know, I'll just keep on listening if you don't feel like really watching the movie, but you'd rather hear someone just talk about it. You know, do whatever you got to do. 
Oh, and another disclaimer, if you are a major fan of the movie Brave, please know that these are my opinions on what the movie delivers and fails to. Okay? Alright, now that we got those two disclaimers out of the way. Oh, and also, I forgot, one more disclaimer. Uh, I will be using explicit language every now and then, who knows when, I don't know. I'm, I'm just recording this stuff like right now, so, you know, who knows. But don't be surprised if I start using explicit language or something. So, let's jump right in. So, let's start with the story. What actually happens in this film? Now, I'll give you kind of a quick rundown of what goes on in this film. So, we have the prologue, which kind of, like, introduces Merida but as a child with her mom and her dad. We meet, like, and then we also get meet with this big bear, this bear that attacks the family. Then, boom, we have title drop. Next, we have Merida when she's old, a little bit older, like a teenager. I think she's around 16, so it's like been 10 years or something. It's never really explicit in the film, but if I remember correctly, yeah, she looks, she was like six in the prologue, and then like after the title drops, then she's pretty much 16-ish, somewhere around there. But she kind of gives this like, I don't know, it's like this monologue that's just like, do we really need to hear this? Trust me, it's not really that important, so I'm not going to dive into it. But then she starts introducing her family. She introduces her dad, her mom, oh, well, not really her mom, her dad, her three young brothers, who are triplets. And then she starts introducing herself and how she thinks that her mother kind of pretty much controls every single moment of her life. And then we get these, um, we get multiple scenes showing, El showing Queen Eleanor, who is Merida's mom, showing uh, her how she's... Merida's not really into this whole princess thing. You know, with the whole public speaking, into, like, the music, the arts. Um, and also, her mom kind of sort of trusts her as far as, like, what it means, how you have to act as a princess. You know, like, there's seriously, like, a lot of stuff that she that her mom says. Like, a, a princess is not a turtle. A princess has to be known to her kingdom, which, actually, that one's fine. Um, does not scoff her gulb, which means don't stop her face without food. Rests early in the morning, which I gotta say, I'm kind of a morning person, but I don't like being waking up that early in the morning. And she says uh, all these other ad these ad adjectives about what it means to be a princess. And well, she ends off, and then Eleanor kind of says in the end that well, every princess strives for perfection. Which not gonna lie, I like eh, that sounds like a lot. Not gonna lie, even for a teenager. So I'm like oof. At this point, I kind of relate to Merida. I'm like, that's kind of a lot, not gonna lie. Especially for perfection, when we all know that's pretty much impossible, and that's actually really subjective on what people think is perfection. So, that's not helpful. And then we get um, Merida's kind of I want song, even though she doesn't sing. Like, no one sings. Well, I won't say that part, but it's not a musical. This movie is not a musical. Even though it does feature a princess, but it's not a musical. It's just this, I want, it pretty much has this I want song called, um, Trust the Sky with Julie Fallis. Pretty much saying that Merida's true desire is to be free. Writing free. And she does some archery stuff. Cool, 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 cool. And then, yeah, she comes home. Uh, and then we are introduced to the idea, to the betrothal. It's arranged marriage where these other clans come together um, to their homeland, to their turf, to pretty much present their sons, and and they and Merida has to choose who she gonna marry. And let's just say, Merida is not thrilled thrilled about this at all. She's like, huh? 
I was not made aware of this. Who who told? Huh? No one told me I was supposed to get married. How, no, I was not preparing my life for this. Hell no. So she's like, oh hell no, I'm not doing this. Uh uh, you can't make me to do this. She was really like freaking out and everything. So Meredith turns out to her out of her out of the the their I guess their dining room table to her room. Just preparing with her sword because she's just mad. And then her mom gives her this story about this ancient kingdom. And honestly, that's kind of like a teenager thing. Like, oh my gosh, this ancient kingdom, this story that I heard a bunch of times. Like, how the hell is this related to my struggles? And I'm going to lie, I did not understand it either. Even when you go out through the film. But, you know, we'll get to that part later. So, uh, Queen Eleanor pretty much talks about this ancient kingdom. About this king who, had to who decided to divide... His kingdom amongst his four sons, the eldest prince. It was like, hell nah, I'm gonna, I wanna rule this place by myself. There's no path, because he was selfish and prideful. You know, the kingdom fell into war, chaos, ruined. Boom, boom, boom. And Marina's just not having it. She's like, what kind of story does this have to do with my life? I mean, she's just, and she just, and for Marina's, she just keeps saying, it's not fair. Like, she just doesn't wanna do this because it's just not fair. With that, I mean, that's literally her rebuttal. That's, that's all her rebuttal is with this. And then the next scene after that, we kind of get this conversation, non-conversation conversation between Eleanor and Merida. It's honestly just two separate, they're just scenes that are like going off at the same time in their time and thing, but then it's just shown to the audience. It's like, oh, they're kind of having this conversation even though they're not having this conversation. Which I know it kind of sounds weird, but honestly, I think it's kind of good in a way because it shows that these two have need to actually communicate with each other they actually need to listen to each other so yeah but it doesn't really go anywhere because they're not actually talking to each other so it's just cool for the audience like yeah sure these two do not know how to listen to each other even though they never actually communicate trust me they never actually get back with this actual this non-conversation conversation later on the film trust me so then after that the clans start to come in. The um, clan McGuffin, clan Dingwall, and clan, and clan Macintosh. So Merida gets ready. Uh, Eleanor helps her get ready in this, not in this very tight dress that honestly looks really uncomfortable. Although I do hear, though, that corsets are, can be uncomfortable, but there are some that are actually kind of decent. But I think at that time, since this is an ancient medieval Scottish kingdom, I don't think corsets at that time were very comfortable. So, yeah. So, you know, Merida kind of, Merida definitely complains about the, how tight the dress is and her mother could care less. And then there's this moment where Eleanor seems like she's going to say something important. But then she backs away from it. Just saying, remember to smile. I'm here just like, huh? Like, what? You, 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 you have this opportunity to possibly, re to, possibly connect with your daughter and this is what you do you back out of it and we don't come back to this moment at all okay whatever so the clan she's finally arrived to the throne room and everything and then they start presenting their sons and not gonna lie the clans themselves are actually not that interesting but don't worry i'll get to them i'll get to all the clan stuff when i talk about characters it's just story stuff what goes on so yeah, but then the but then all the clans are start fighting with each other because I guess they insult each other. I I guess I I'm not totally sure 
why really? They just start fighting with each other. And Fergus, King Fergus, which I for, kind of forgot to tell you, that's how, that's the king's name. That's the husband of Eleanor, the daughter, the, not the daughter, the father of Merida and her brothers. And he's like actually having a gleeful time about it. And then everyone else is like, really, bruh? Actually, kind of thinking that entire scene, all the men are just fighting with each other. Literally, all of them are ones that's like, this is great or hilarious. Well, literally, the only two other women in this in the room, Meredith and Eleanor, they're just like, what the hell is wrong with y'all? He was like, oh, gosh. So, Crane first is telling him to pretty much stop the fighting, but then they go back to fighting again, and then he joins the fight. I'm like, are you kidding me? <sighs> and then Eleanor, which, honestly, this is kind of a boss move of Eleanor, not gonna lie. She comes in, and she starts parting the sea of men. She's literally just walking, and the men move away. I'll, like... She's part of this sea of men fighting. How the hell do you do this? Wow. This chick, okay, that was kind of a boss move. Now, that's a boss move from Queen Eleanor, okay? She bossed like that. And then she starts, like, pinning, then she starts, like, pulling the ears of the clan she's and her husband, and it's just like, wow. Just, wow. This is just bad. This is, y'all embarrass yourselves. <sighs> so finally, we go back to actual making stuff sense land. And now she starts introducing the games and how this is all going to work as far as the the clan, the Lord's son's going to compete for Merida's hand. How it is the firstborn, like there's the rules. You have to be a firstborn and you have to succeed in this event that, that the princess gets to choose herself. And whoever wins in that event is the one who's pretty much going to marry Merida. Which, and this is actually the moment where Merida's like, firstborn? Hmm... Interesting. Firstborn, and I get to choose the event. So guess what? She chooses Archer because that is her wheelhouse. Kind of forgot to mention of that in the Touch the Sky scene. Uh, was it like during that one? So she was doing. She was riding with her horse named Angus, and she was um, firing arrows. So yeah, kind of forgot to talk about that. Uh, let's see. So yeah. So the Merida announces that she chooses archery. The games begin. Um, so yeah. The games begin, and the sun started going to the post, and they only get one shot for a bullseye. So, we start with Lord MacGuffin's son. He misses, like, by a lion's light. It was just a huge miss. I mean, it was on the, the target itself, but, oof, did not get the bullseye. I'll tell you that much. Okay, and then we have Macintosh's son. He was close. He was pretty close. But then he has a freaking fit about it. Like, wow. Very mature, dude. Very mature. And then we get to wee Dingwall. Dingwall's son. His only son. He, as you can tell, is a serious novice. It's like, I don't think he's ever held a bow and actually drew, like, fire a bow and arrow at, at all in his life. But for some reason, he's the one that actually gets the bullseye. I don't know how that happened. <sighs> I don't know how that happened. It was surprising. I gotta say, I was like, how the hell did you, how? I never understand. That makes no damn sense to me. Okay, well next part, this is actually where things actually get really interesting. Because Meredith starts enacting her plan as to pretty much, well, this is what really the scene goes. She says, I am Merida, firstborn descendant of Clan Dombrot and I'll be shooting for my own hand. So yeah, she pretty much sets up, 
<coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Got a little dry. Let me just get something to drink real quick. Because <coughs> this is actually an important scene, and I really like this scene, so I got it. Hold up. <sighs> okay. <coughs> Sorry about that. What was I talking about? Oh, yes, this amazing scene. So, as Meredith starts to... Uh, as Meredith starts to... Um, for her arrows. She gets the bolt. So she starts from like MacGuffin's side in order to Macintosh and then Dingwall. So she starts with MacGuffin's. She gets the bullseye. But as, and then um, Macintosh. Bullseye. And as she's shooting these arrows, her mom is really trying to tell her to stop this because it's like, girl, would you, you stop it. Stop it right now. Don't you dare. And also when she gets to the final one, Eleanor says, don't you dare fire another arrow. And I forbid you to fire that last arrow. Merida takes her time to study her arrow. To look, and she takes at least, and she exhales one breath, and she she breathes in, and she lets go the arrow. And the arrow goes through that other arrow, which is like a double bullseye, and it went through like the target thing. And damn, it just shows a, sh and then the movie shows a shot of how she gets these three bullseyes simultaneously. She just proved herself as a badass right there. But let's just say that badassery is uh, short-lived because then we go to the next shot where she's literally facing her mother. Like her, face is, her mother and her are like really face-to-face, -face, so close to face-to-face. -face. And Meredith's like, I just did what I just did. Ha, you can't stop nothing about it. And then Eleanor's just like, ooh, girl, ooh, you really done it this time. And then we go to the next scene where these two are pretty much fighting and arguing. And honestly, I don't really like this scene as much. I mean, it's understandable because <laughs> Meta didn't really think that the aftermath of such, uh, such things that she has done. <laughs> so, let's see. Yeah, so they have a falling out. They started doing, they said said things and did things that were really mean. And, um, Merida leaves, um, her mother cries, and then we kind of get, and then we get to, like, the forest, because when she runs away and stuff, then we kind of be in this pillar circle, which I'll also talk about, which is kind of strange. It's pillar circle. And then we start these little ghost-like creatures called the Wisps, which we actually hear about in the prologue. But these Wisps are leading her to a cottage, to the witch's cottage. And to the switch, even though she, even though the witch is trying to say not no, she's just a bear carver, and gotta say she carves a lot of stairs with just bears. Trust me, I think it's a weird thing, and I don't know why she she does bears. We'll get to the witch later, but um, yeah. So Merida asks the witch, once she finds out that she actually is a witch, to give her a spell, a spell to change her mom. So that it can change your fate. Very ambiguous. You know? Because there's literally, you can honestly have a spell for anything to change your mom in order to change your fate. Literally anything you do can change your fate, not gonna lie. So yeah, the witch does it, gives her a cake to do that. Merida goes back home. Um, her mom eats the cake. She pretend, Although Merida pretends as if she made the cake in order to trick her mom into eating it. Her mom gets really sick. Although, while she's not feeling well, Merida keeps asking how she feels about the marriage. And I'm just like, really? Not a good time, Merida. Not a good time. So, her mom uh, gets goes on her bed, trying to see if she can get better with some time. 
And guess what? Her mom turns into a bear. This is when we're 40 minutes into the film and her mother's already a bear. And just to let you know, this film, let's see, how long is this film again? This film is about, uh, I can't remember how much time has passed. This film is a long, is a long film, okay? It's kind of long. It's like an hour and 31-ish minutes. So it's like a little bit more than 90 minutes. And 40 minutes in, when we get to the middle of the film, her mom turns into a bear. Like, really? Yeah, yeah, trust me. It, if you think this is a dumb twist, trust me, it's a really dumb twist. Because now we get to hijink stuff. And then the princes, uh, Meredith's young, three little brothers, have to help her to get her mom out of the castle. Because Fergus does not like bears. He literally actually, actually, I kind of forgot to mention this, but Fergus actually lost his leg due to that menacing bear in the prologue. So, yeah, he hates bears. He has a grudge with bears now. So, yeah. They had to get Eleanor and Meredith out of the castle to go back to the witch's cottage to see how to change uh, Eleanor back. So, they did that. They get to the witch's cottage, but the witch is not there anymore. Huh, how convenient. And then the and then we get this cauldron voicemail. Um, where, um... Where the witch pretty much tells us as the audience what's gonna what they need to do to in order to change the mother back to a human. I mean, she says the titular lines Fate be changed. Look inside. Men the bond torn bright pride. Yeah, honestly, it if it, it doesn't really take that much to really figure out what that means. Fate was changed. You gotta look inside yourself. You had to mend the bond between the mother and the daughter, and that was torn by pride. I mean, what else? I mean, for some reason, Meredith couldn't figure it out until, like, I don't know, like, the one-hour mark. So this is, like, 50 minutes in when we actually get pretty much what we need to do for the rest of the movie. So, yeah, now we did for, let's see, for the 50-minute mark to one-hour mark, we just get them kind of bonding. Like, really one scene that really shows them bonding, but I'm like, eh, I don't really see it. Honestly, I really don't see them bonding. It's with the song called Into the Open Air by also Julie Fallis as well. But I, I don't really buy it. I, I really don't. So, yeah, but then we start seeing that, oh, her mother is really changing into a real bear. And I also forgot to mention that the curse will be permanent by the second sunrise. So they really have 48 hours, actually less than that, in order to change her mom back to a bear. So, yeah, that's the, that's the stakes. We get that around the 50-minute mark. That's just great, isn't it? Uh, so, yeah, who's that? But once you get to these stakes are kind of soon, like, oh, yeah, this is getting really serious. Then we get to, oh, yeah, remember this um, ancient kingdom thing that Mary's mom said at about the 15, about around 15, 18 minutes into the film about this ancient kingdom? Yeah, now we're getting back to that. And also more do, which we haven't really seen since the prologue, too. We get to see him now in about 55 minutes-ish into the film. We actually see that this ancient kingdom story was real and how, like, it it actually parallels and actually it's the same exact thing happening, happened before, is happening again. So, like, wow. And that Mordu is actually the 
uh, prince that pretty much bled his kingdom into chaos, war, and ruins. So yeah, we had a t so then they had to like escape from that kingdom because it's actually really a rubble. Like it's so in rubble, like you didn't like you would never realize it was actually was once a kingdom before. Just kind of sad in that case. Um, so let's see. Yep, they escape. Now they have to start. Now they know what to do because of we know about the ancient kingdom now and how that happened. So now we know that guess what? We need to go back in order to tour in order to. to Man of the Born that was torn by Pride, which is the tapestry. And I'm just like, huh? Look, I'll get to the tapestry and all that stuff when I get to later in the more without the characters, but what the hell does the tapestry have to do with them with their bond? What the hell? So yeah, they get back to the castle, but apparently, during this entire time of the film, the men, all they were trying to do is just fight amongst each other. Which I guess has been like 24 hours since they left the king, since they left the castle. But wow, they spent 24 hours fighting amongst each other. That is truly just sad. Like they were just fighting amongst each other, and now planning to go to war. Oh gosh. So then this is I guess Merida's moment of character growth or something, which I honestly do not think it was earned. Where she kind of gives us like speech in order to like calm the men down I guess and to not get into war by rem reminding them of how their kingdom was formed since it actually isn't that old not gonna lie like the kingdom is actually pretty recent apparently but I guess we only get that kind of information where we're one hour into the film oh how that that that's just nice how how nice of them to do that so yeah we kind of get this little slight backstory about how they were once enemies, but came together from because of invaders, and then decided to make Fergus their king. Yeah, okay. And then, oh yeah, this is also the part where they start bringing back the marriage. Yeah, the, remember the marriage? You kind of forget about that part, huh? Because of the whole bear stuff. Yeah, that's great. And they really kind of just have a very anticlimactic end to that plot, but like, Having Eleanor as a bear trying to like guy Meredith to say that she can't, that she changed her mind about it, and honestly that moment is so not earned. There was no build up to that. I don't know where the hell they get that part from. I guess they're just trying to clean it up since we kind of forgot about it. So yeah, all the men, eagles are fine. They're great. They're happy now. They don't go to war. They all agree. And also apparently the princes also don't want to do this whole marriage thing either, which. Honestly, we don't have anything with other princes, but I'll get to that part again when we get to characters. Trust me. There's a lot to say about every single character in this movie. Well, sort of. I'll, I'll explain that part when we get to characters. But, yeah, so let's see. They get to the tapestry, but hijinks happen, and Fergus finds out that his wife is dead, stopped the bear, was gonna kill Merida. The uh, mama bear accidentally hurts Fergus and Merida. She runs away, feeling guilty, but she runs really away because all the men find her, and then she has to really run away from her life. Merida tries to explain to her dad about this magic stuff, and that there was a witch with a spell, even though she never actually explains that it was actually her fault. <sighs> and then she gets locked in her room. She starts pounding about it, but then she's like, nope, I need to get this tapestry out. And then she uses her. And then also a thing I kind of forgot to mention too. Remember the little triplets? You know the boys that helped them to uh, uh, help Merida and Eleanor escape the castle. Yeah. So apparently Merida forgot 
about the cake that she left in the kitchen. They ate it, and now they're bear cubs. Another bad twist with this movie. No one cares about these damn things. What the hell? Gosh. <sighs> so, yeah, the bear cubs help with getting Meredith out of the, out of the, um, her room, out of the tapestry, all that stuff. It's tension rising here because the men are getting really close to nearly gaining Eleanor and Merida is trying her best to sew up the tapestry. Um, but luckily she makes it in time before, even though they, even though um, the men and Fergus capture Eleanor as a bear, even though Fergus has no idea that Eleanor is actually a bear and he's about to murder his own wife. Um, yep. But Merida stops that from happening and then guess what? We see more dew again. Oh, that's just great. For the climax, okay? So, climax time, the men are trying to fight uh, Mordu. Meredith tries to, but she fails, and it looks like he's about to kill her. Then, I guess we have Mama Bear 2.0 coming in to protect her daughter, because Eleanor's like, oh, hell no, bitch, you ain't gonna kill my daughter. Mm-mm, you bet, I'm gonna whoop your ass. So, that's what she tries to do. And then Mordu dies. Yeah, he gets, like, crushed by one of those stone pillar things. Like, no, seriously, he gets, like, seriously crushed. And then we see the soul of the of the eldest prince from the ancient kingdom and he kind of like nods to merida and then bam he looks like a whips so i'm like wait a minute so you mean to tell me that the okay you know what i'll get to the whips later but yeah the, that, that's how that ends part so mordu's dead spirit is free uh oh yeah so this is when the second sunrise comes and merida uses the tapestry to cover her mom and hopefully her mom can be turned back to human, but nope. Her mom is fully a bear. Then Merida cries and apologizes to her mom and keep crying until the sun, the actual sunlight, actually touches the tapestry. And then her mom is back to being a human. This is like a fake death kind of thing. And yeah, she's like butt naked. Yeah. And also, because of the curse that's been, because of the spell has been broken. Then the princes are also turned back into humans as well. So there's all happy ending and stuff. Merida and Eleanor are kind of close again now. The clans leave. They go back to their respective lands. And the movie ends with Merida's small, short of monologue. Talk about being brave enough to change your fate. Which, honestly, I don't see how that was even a struggle for her. But whatever. And then, yeah, the movie ends. Who boy. I talked about for just about 30 minutes talking about the movie. And I haven't really gone into depth about the characters or anything else. Oh well, this is just a, this is just me being very detailed. Oh well. So, that's the movie. So, yeah. Um, one word for this entire story. Kind of confusing, not gonna lie. But also kind of similar at the same time. Like, it's honestly two movies, but in one. You know? It's two separate... I feel like there's two plots that makes up one story that makes that story very confusing. Like, it starts off literally with the arranged marriage, but then we start to shift focus by the 40-minute mark to Eleanor being changed from a, from a human to a bear. And then we have to, like, figure out what that... And then they lazily bring in with the marriage plot. As if I'm like, wait, so this stuff was important, which led to all these events, but then, yeah, we just clean it up under the rug like that? Sure, okay. And I don't know if it's just me, but I felt like the whole bear twist was kind of similar to another film 
from Disney that came out in like 2006, which is like six years before this movie came out, you know, called Brother Bear. But then in Brother Bear, it makes sense, a lot more sense why it has to do something with the bear, because the main protagonist in that movie killed a bear, and that mother, and that bear was actually mother with her own cup, and then uh, that protagonist had to be changed into a bear in order to pretty much take care of this baby, bear, this bear cub. So it makes sense in that regard, but it doesn't make sense here. Like, what does Mer what does Eleanor have to be turned into a bear for? Like, the whole bear thing doesn't make sense. And also it's really weird with the witch character about this whole thing with bears. I don't know why she calls bears. I find that very strange. And also, there's not that much development as far as the actual, like, world that the kingdom is set in. Like, we don't actually get any background or lore except for that speech thing towards, like, the end of the film. Like, you know, like, a couple scenes before the climax where Meredith kind of, like, references how the kingdom formed. But I feel it's so lazily put in that, like, it doesn't really matter. This I feel like such stuff like this should have been said in the beginning of the film. Because there's actually a line that Eleanor says when in the sequence of scenes where she's trying to teach Merida how to like pretty much be a princess. And she says, a princess must be knowledgeable about her kingdom. That's nice! As the audience, can we also be knowledgeable too? Like, this is a fictional world. This is a fictional medieval Scottish kingdom. I kind of would like to know more about how this kingdom was formed. And like, let me a little bit learn more about your Scottish culture stuff. I mean, I could tell that some stuff was definitely been, like, you know, you get a little bit of it, but like, I don't know, I don't really feel like this is a Scottish film, you know? It, it doesn't give me much Scottish feels. It, it really doesn't, except for like, something said in Gaelic, and then the Scottish accents. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. There's, there's nothing really else. It kind of sucks. And also, the legend of this ancient kingdom is actually pretty pointless as well. Like, it's trying to, like, I guess, parallel and contrast with, like, what Merida is doing. But it doesn't, it doesn't really feel like it really mattered. It was just, like, an excuse to have, like, a, I guess, an antagonist, but he's not really one either. <sighs> The concept of this film is kind of basic. You know, a princess wanting freedom from an arranged marriage that's not... It's not quite as original, but, like, I feel like as a concept, even in 2012, was kind of interesting to me. But mind you, I didn't watch this film as a kid in theaters. Actually, I didn't know this film even existed in theaters at 12, at the 2012. I mean, I was, like, 10, and it was, like, all this stuff going on with me. So, like, I wasn't paying attention with movies and stuff like that. But, like, I did, my mom was able to buy the movie, I guess, a few years later, and I watched it, but, like, I thought it was pretty cool and stuff, especially with the archery stuff. And, like, Scottish, and also her have this unique accent, which at the time I did not know was Scottish, so it was, like, pretty cool in that regard, but it doesn't give me this sense of, oh, this is what it means to be a part of the Scottish culture. Even if it's, like, an ancient medieval kingdom that's, of course, fictional, but, like, Honestly, I don't really get that. Maybe I'm missing something for someone who's just not knowledgeable about Scottish culture. But 
I don't know. I feel like there's just something missing about the Scot about the Scottish world. This fictional fantasy world. I don't know. And I don't think this this education was well put together either. Especially since the focus of the film has been shifted. So makes like the first act of the film was kinda pointless. Even though it led to these events, but it didn't feel like it actually was that important. Which is honestly kinda sad. And also another thing too about the mother-daughter relationship, I feel like it's not well developed as far as them growing together. Like I don't believe Eleanor and Merida were starting to grow towards each other, you know? I mean, I understand the reason that they will grow apart. I just don't understand them coming together. You know, I, I don't really believe the change that happened between Merida and Eleanor. And it really sucks for Eleanor's case because she was actually a bear for most of the movie. So I honestly don't feel like she's really changed except for the fact that she's no longer a bear. And that's pretty much it. And again, with the bear twist, it's literally the dumbest thing ever. Like, why does Eleanor have to be turned into a bear? How does changing Eleanor into a bear help her relationship with Merida? And also, I don't think it really, and also, in a technical level, this is actually a trope, like an person to animal trope, I, that honestly, especially with mainstream movies, it happens a lot more with people of color. I mean, it happened in Brother Bear with an indigenous character, it happened in The Princess of the Frog with a black character, it happened in Soul. With another black character. Having the Emperor's New Groove with the Latin American character. I think he's just South American. I don't remember. But, you know, person of color. Nonetheless. This is like the only film that I know of that's actually come to a, someone who's actually, um, like, white. But, like, it doesn't really make sense. And the other movies, it kind of makes sense. Or at least mostly makes sense. But it's still just a terrible trope. I honestly don't like the trope as a whole. Not only the word does people of color, but also I just don't like the idea that you had to change your humanity in order to, like, grow and learn from it. Even if it works kind of well, I just don't like how they, I just don't like that kind of a trope. It just sounds really dumb. And in those movies, like I said, Brother Bear, Princess of the Frog, Soul, and Emperor's New Groove, those were with protagonists. This is a movie that's actually not towards the protagonist that they change into an animal. This happens to a protagonist's parent like huh makes no sense hold on i gotta drink a water drink something <sighs> sorry my throat's dry again okay so let's get to the part that i really 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 want to talk about and that would be the characters Let's start with Merida, our first female-led protagonist. Merida is headstrong, decisive, energetic, but she's also brash, pretty bratty, boring, and, and really whiny. She seeks freedom and independence, I mean, which is kind of shown in Touch the Sky, where she literally wants to fire arrows into the sunset and be adventurous and be independent and be free. She even says in she says a lot in this movie, actually the first act actually, that she wants her freedom. She doesn't want to be confined into marriage at all. She's actually, to be honest, I kind of thought of this film a little bit, like how maybe she's just completely opposed to marriage. But honestly, I just don't, I think she says that she's just not ready for marriage. 
which is actually pretty distinct because I had a kind of a headcanon with her about her being possibly aromantic asexual, which is a person that, is, that, ha that has little to no sexual attraction, that's asexual, and little to no romantic attraction, aromantic. But it's quite possible that she could possibly not be aromantic asexual or aero ace, but yet just someone who just doesn't, who's just not ready for marriage. She's just opposed to the idea of marriage because right now that takes away her freedom. She doesn't feel like she's ready for it at all. And she doesn't want to be pressured into doing that right now, especially when she apparently had no idea that she's going to be betrothed. No one actually told her that she was going to get married at 16 or have an arranged marriage. No one, no, no one mentioned this at all, which... Honestly, I feel like that's really strange that no one would, that, especially her mother, would not mention that she's preparing her whole life in order to be married and become queen. Well, not become queen part. I think she knew that she was going to be queen, but she didn't want to be like queen in the sense of like, that's like her mom. But I think it should have been a discussion that should have been talked about, which, by the way, I feel like there's very little actual discussions going on in this film. I feel like if there were times where they showed mature adult um, conversations between a mother and a daughter, I think a lot of the problems in this movie would have been solved. Or at least show why they can't have these kind of conversations. Well, they do, in a way. They kind of show us in this one scene, you know, like I talked about, this, con this non-conversation conversation, how they kind of show us as the audience that, yeah, these two characters can't really listen to each other. They want them to listen to each other, but they don't. But yet the whole bear twist shows that they do. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that. Uh -uh. So yeah, no, that's a headstrong, decisive, energetic stuff because you know she wants her freedom and stuff. But she's pretty brash. Not gonna lie, like she really does things like kind of impulsive, impulsively. Like she remember, like I was talking to you about the um, her plan that she concocted for the games as far as to her, she be shooting for her own hand. So yeah, she thought of the plan to get there, to do all that, but she didn't really think about the consequences of said actions. Because in a way, well not in a way, she actually really did embarrass her mom, her dad, and the clan chiefs. She embarrassed everyone that she really does not want to be married, and there's no point of her being married at all when she's this good. And that's honestly kind of messed up. Because it really, really shows that, like, wow, you just showed you're literally better than everyone by, like, a landslide. Oof. But it's honestly the part was just the most badass right there. Because not only is she defying an all-age old custom, but she's really defying her mom, who's telling her to confine to, um, kind of to the tradition and gender roles of what it means to be a princess. Which, honestly, I feel like is a missed opportunity with this film that I think about this character with Merida. And especially with her mom. Who is, in a way, is kind of the opposite, but also similar to Merida. Similar. Not quite the same. Uh, Merida is definitely a lot like her father than her mother. But, you know, she has her moments. For Eleanor, she is graceful, elegant, and diplomatic. But she's also strict and also stubborn. Like Merida. Merida is also stubborn. You know what? The entire family is stubborn, not gonna lie. Everyone is pretty stubborn in this film, so... <clears throat> but in, like, Eleanor's case, she's really trying to show her daughter what it means to be a queen. And how to be a queen. Especially since this kingdom's actually pretty young. 
Like, this kingdom was formed by Merida's parents and his clan chiefs from who knows how long ago. So, yeah. There's a, I mean, this, like I said, like I said before, I truly wish there was, like, a background or at least a mo or just something or a flashback of how all this became to be with this kingdom. I feel like that's really important with this story because it kind of shows how this custom came to be in the first place and everything. We only get a quick reference to, to it in this non-conversation conversation between Eleanor and Merida when they're not really conversation, where the queen actually briefly and quickly mentions how she understands how this arranged marriage may seem unfair and that how she also had reservations when she was first patrolled. I was like, oh, that's actually kind of interesting that you kind of were thinking this might be not be it for you, but we don't get that sort of background. We don't get this. We don't get that from Eleanor's perspective because we're focusing more on Merida's perspective. We don't get the back and forth. There's no actual conversation between the two, which is why I really, really, really wish Pixar allowed the uh, this moment when Merida was getting ready to present herself to the clans, to the other clans and their sons. To make sure she's looking great which actually the dress did look great but it was just really tight but there's this moment where Eleanor was literally about to talk to her daughter as if she was gonna it's like this moment of emotional vulnerability like maybe she was gonna tell her daughter something important that she was gonna tell her how she feels and that she knows what Meredith is feeling I truly believe that would have been amazing that also would have brought a lot of less emotional conflict between the two but no she backs away to say Remember to smile. Like, what the fuck? I wanted that emotional moment. I wanted to see that between these two, between the two of them. Or at least represent back or something. But no, they don't do it. They never have this conversation. They don't actually talk about the fact of this arranged marriage. Oh, gosh. And another thing, too, about Merida is that she was honestly getting on my nerves through most of this movie. I think, what was the point that she started to, to just, when she starts to become unlikable? What was the moment? Actually, she, uh, I don't know. She was kind of whiny before anyways, but as like, I understood why she was kind of whiny. Not gonna lie, I'm like, I understand why you're whiny, but you were just being still whiny though, and still couldn't communicate. Other than saying that it's just totally unfair. While still complaining. I don't know. I think it was after the badass archery scene. I think it was afterwards. That's where she really started to really get on my nerves. Because when they're... Because there's a scene, which I didn't really go into depth before, about when... After that scene, where Merida and Eleanor start arguing with each other. And how Merida just keeps saying, like, you know, it's totally unfair about the, all of this. And how she says that her mother was never there for her. How this whole marriage is what her mom wanted. And she never asked what she wanted. Well, I mean, she's still right. It's how marriage was actually, it actually really is Eleanor's idea. She never, Eleanor never asked Merida, is this what you want? She just, she never did. Telling her what to do and what not to do, as if to turn her to be like her. And not gonna lie, I do know it's kind of a little bit, it is pretty whiny the way she said it. But I feel like if this was like a sit down kind of a conversation or just a chance for them to really listen and connect with each other, maybe Merida could have said that, I don't like the fact that you are controlling every single moment of my life to become someone that I don't think I can ever be. I don't think I can be like you because I'm not like you. 
and I really don't want to do this marriage thing. And I think if she, if Merida really explained to her mom why she doesn't do this marriage, maybe this would give a moment for Eleanor to maybe relate to her, you know? But that never happened in this entire film, between the two of them at all. No conversation, no any other scene talking about it or just referencing it at all. Which is why the bear twist was just so egregious because it makes it seem like everything we saw before was just pointless. Like, this, like you know, towards the end, they start seeing like it's very happy and stuff, but Merida, after the bear twist, was acting, it was literally saying that's never her fault. Like, it was not her fault. It was the witch's fault for turning her mother into a bear because she never asked for it. But yet you're the one, but yet she's the one who asked the witch for a spell. The witch didn't give the spell to Eleanor to trick her or anything. Like, no. Merida, you're the one who went to the witch, asked for a spell to change your mom to, to, um, to change your fate. Which is honestly really ambiguous since you never actually really specified. But I guess you didn't want to tell a stranger about your business. But then again, it's also your fault for asking a stranger to pretty much do something about your business. So, you know, that's honestly your fault. But yeah, it gets she's just really annoying, and that's when she gets really bratty and just super whiny. I mean, she was already kind of whiny before, but then she just becomes a brat because then now she's just really saying like, "Oh yeah, it's definitely not my fault. It's totally the witch's fault." And then like when I said at the end with her crying, and her mom's just already fully a bear, which is kind of like really a fake death, really. But her mom is fully a bear, and then Marisol starts crying, and now she starts to apologize, saying, "I'm sorry. I'm the one who did this to you." It's like. Really, bitch? You wait till now to apologize when your mom literally is a bear so she can't even hear the apology? And how you start crying that you want her back? Well, that's what you freaking get! That is honestly what you get for changing your mom into a bear! That was on you, man. And for the fact she doesn't get any consequences. The only, I guess, consequence she got was that she, that her mom was kind of like, I don't know, yell it at her. Because, like, actually, right when the twist actually happens, when Meredith says that it's not my fault I changed you to a bear, I just actually wish to change you. And then, like, and then Eleanor just roars at her. I'm like, yeah, I would be very mad myself. And then she kind of, like, goes off, kind of like, I don't know, just, I guess the what you say, it seems like as a parent, like, trying to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you did this. How dare you do this? Oh, you're so in trouble, kind of thing. And then Mary just sitting there like, "Oh, it's totally not. It's not my fault. It was the witch's fault, googly old hag." I'm just like, "Girl, bitch, that is your fault. Okay, that is so your fault." Oh, honestly, Mary just really got my nerves, and it really sucks for Eleanor's case because we don't get much background, so it kind of seems like we have to side with Merida because that's the perspective we're looking in this movie. We don't get much of Eleanor's side other than she's trying to prepare Merida for a better life, even though we don't get much background information because she is a queen, so it's like, what better life? We don't know what life you had before. Maybe that would be nice to know. I don't know. It, it really blows. And honestly, I have a lot to talk about with these two because these two are the only, these two are like our main focus characters with Meredith as the protagonist, but everyone else is pretty much useless or incompetent. <sighs> okay. I'm going to drink some more water because, oh boy, we have more characters to go through, but even though there's not much to talk about, about each of them, since they're just useless, pointless, and incompetent. Oh boy.
it's just gonna be a doozy one. Okay. Let's go to Mordu. Which, as a kid, I wasn't really scared of him necessarily. But I always thought that was weird that he always went after Merida. And he only gets like three scenes the entire movie. Three scenes that we actually see him. The prologue. Um, the time where Merida and Eleanor go to this ancient kingdom's ruins. And then the climax. That's it. If he's truly an antagonist, then he doesn't really have an overarching presence in the entire film. He really sucks as a, as a protagonist, if he is meant to be it, which I don't think he is meant to. Because I, he doesn't really have any motivations for what he's doing. Like I said, he is the oldest prince from the ancient kingdom, which was been referenced actually, and also that whole thing was actually also not very shocking either. Like, there was moments where it's actually pretty obvious. In fact, when Eleanor is actually talking about the ancient kingdom, we see... For, there's actually a shot in that sequence when she's talking about the Ancient Kingdom and stuff where the prince sounds like a bear and he's holding two axes. Keep in mind with the two axes because we're going to get that reference later on. When we meet the witch character, she talks about this prince who asked her for a spell to change his fate and then he gave her a ring that shows two axes crossed against, crossed, crossed against each other. And she says that he got what he wanted. He got what he wanted. He wanted the strength of ten men. Hmm. Ten men. We saw this prince guy. It sounded like a bear. Two axes. We see the ring with the two axes. Hmm. It makes me wonder. Yeah, guess what? The oldest prince is, a, is Mordu. We kind of already figured that out before we got to the ruins. So it's not really that surprising. Not gonna lie. But honestly, if you check, if you mentally checked out the film, then it probably might be a little shocked. But honestly, it's not that surprising. It, it's pretty obvious. <sighs> Again, no really clear motivation. I mean, he only wanted the spell, you know, to change his fate so that he can be ruler of his kingdom. But because of the fact that um, he got a string of ten men, but then later on changed, became more and more like a bear. He pretty much went berserk and killed everyone. And now the kingdoms are ruins, and that's where he resides now. And it's honestly kind of sad. And for his case, actually, it's kind of a little bit intriguing. At least to me it was. Because I just was always wondering to myself, every single time I watched, watched this movie as a kid, I always asked myself, why did Mordu attack Merida? And I guess in a narrative standpoint, they were just trying to show, like, hey, he's complete... He's pretty similar to Merida. This is what happened. This would. This is. This is what would have happened if Merida was a bear, and she pretty much did whatever she wants to change her fate, and it probably would have been in her kingdom to war, chaos, and ruin as well. Which I guess is fine, but do you really need to have this legend or this? Yeah, this like legend of this ancient kingdom with Mordu. It's. It's really just. Eh. But then it also doesn't explain why he's going attacking for Merida specifically. Like, every single time this guy is seen, he's always going against, he's trying to always go after Merida. She, he even went after Merida as a child in the prologue. It honestly makes no sense. And there's no explanation as to why. 
and he has no actual connection besides his parallel. There's no actual, like, there's no actual connection beside the parallel. At, that's it. Just because he's a parallel to Merida. That's the only connection. And I guess whatever they have in the prologue, but still, does not explain a damn thing. Although, I do have a kind of a theory. I feel like the whips are the souls of the people from the ancient kingdom that died. And it looked to Merida as her being the person who is meant to destroy Mordu in order to avenge these people that died. So more, so that's it for the whips part. But then as far as Mordu himself, he he's already a mindless bear. So honestly, I think this, his soul just really wanted to escape. He just wanted he just wanted to die, which is actually really sad. He just wanted to die. He wanted someone to kill him so that he's no longer a bear and that his soul can finally be free and that he can finally rest. That's kind of compelling. Except that they never really explain it and it kind of shows just you only see him like three times in that total movie and we don't get much personality. We actually don't get any personality with him. He's so bland. Just there. Just wow. Just <sighs> Missed opportunity, to be honest. They honestly could have dealt more with it, but nope, they don't wanna. I mean, if they weren't gonna delve into it or put more with a personality with him, then there's honestly no point of having them there. But, you know, I digress. Okay, let's go to the witch character. We only really see her in one scene, and the next time we see her is in a voicemail, cauldron voicemail. So... Let's talk about the one scene we actually see her. <sighs> so, we see that we made the witch. She's in a small cottage. She claims that she's a bear carver. And yeah, she has a lot, and I mean a lot of wood pieces revolving around bears. And it's never, ever explained why. In fact, the, character, the witch character is actually pretty pointless. Their only purpose is to give Merida the spell. And to, like, tell her and the audience how to reverse it. That's it. She's this old lady that just has this weird thing with bears. And it's never explained why. Like, to this very day, even as a kid, and now, as I'm talking to you about this, I have no idea why she cars bears. The point that it's actually kind of creeping me out, and I'm surprised that Merida didn't feel that that was strange. Well, she thought it was kind of strange, but like she was only like she was also she was just confused because the whips led her to the cottage. So, yeah, I don't, yeah, doesn't really do much now, does it? That that's it. That's the only thing you found strange. And then she was so shocked and happy that she's that she's a witch, so that she can change her fate. Like, okay. And the witch doesn't have any other intentions except for just, like, getting paid and doing the spell real quick. And then she, like, leaves <laughs> for this festival, and then she won't be back till spring, which is pretty convenient. And she forgets to tell Merida that, um, that the spell will be permanent after the second sunrise from which the spell has been used. So, also convenient, so we can come back to it. 
Yeah. That's really weird. So yeah, the witch character is um not really that interesting. She does her thing to give the spell and give us the audience and Meredith and Eleanor what to do. So mm-hmm. No explain no explanation for her bad reception. There's no actual intent for her, no motivations, nada. Just a blank slate for someone to just give the protagonist something. Yeah, great. Okay, so I kind of lumped the other characters, like the male characters, into like two separate characters with King Fergus and like the clan she's in every other male character. Between the lords, the clans, and the triplet sons, and everyone else, so... Yeah, there's not really much to talk about the other main... The male, the male characters in this movie. Fergus, dad character who pretty much Meredith relates to a lot. He doesn't believe in magic, he fought more due in the prologue, which led him to losing his leg. Kind of like Hiccup from House of Dreaming Dragon. Um, he's not really good at public speaking, but he seems to care about his family, and especially his wife and daughter and sons. He cares. He does. But, like, another thing, too, that I kind of find interesting with Fergus and Eleanor is that they're... They had a... They're actually... Their marriage was also arranged, but for them, it kind of looks like it's going well. Hmm. Interesting. Makes it kind of think if the movie focused on the arranged marriage, maybe we can have a contrast of how maybe Eleanor could have used, hey, your dad and I went through an arranged marriage and look how we turned out we are love each other we have four amazing we have four kids we have a kingdom that's prosperous and well and all things good even though we have these clans and have to do with arranged marriage because it's custom and stuff but you know maybe it'd be nice to just kind of show that contrast it would maybe if you focus more on the marriage plot you know but i digress and uh back to fergus though he likes to fight a lot He's kind of like the source, well, him and the other main other male characters are the source of the rude humor and the comedy in this entire movie, which, by the way, is actually not that great. I'll get to the rude humor in there. Because this movie is rated PG because of scary action sequences and rude humor, which the scariest of, like, I sure, I guess it's pretty scary. It kind of is scary, I guess, for... For a child, sort of. I don't know. I, I watched some other PG stuff, and honestly, it, it didn't phase me as much. Maybe because I was just so used to it. Who knows? <clears throat> but I digress. So yeah, he likes to fight a lot. Um, and he doesn't do much, except for the fact that he fights, and he doesn't believe in magic. He doesn't really have an arc at all. Same thing with, like, Merida. Her arc is, I guess, is there but it's not really believable or developed that well because she starts off because Merida starts off as a brash whiny headstrong energetic princess to someone who's trying to fight this marriage stuff to someone who has to rectify her mistake even though she doesn't really have consequences so I don't think she really grew and if she and if the movie tries to show you they grew I honestly don't believe it Eleanor, she is elephant, graceful, uh, strict and stubborn, but then she becomes less strict because of the fact that she turned her, she got turned into a bear, even though it's actually not Eleanor's fault that she turned into a bear, it's her daughter's fault, and she didn't really punish her daughter for turning her into a bear. So, you know, that's weird. Mordu, no arc, he's bland. The Wish, also bland, no arc. Fergus, not much going on with him either. 
Bland, no arc. In fact, none of the male characters or the Clanchies have actual arcs in here. Except that, like, and it's really sad with the Clanchies cases because the whole build up with the marriage and them coming over is meant to be pretty important in the first act of the film. But yet, we don't really know anything about the Clanchies themselves or even until, like, the, the Meredith's speech thing was how far as how they were once heroic and stuff and build this kingdom together and made Fergus their king, which, honestly, I, I don't really see it. It also really sucks for the clan chief's sons. Like, they're so bland. There's nothing to them either. Even when they're introduced, okay? Like, ugh, so bland. So boring. Nothing. And it's also a weird thing, too. Like, when they try to bring, when they bring back up the marriage stuff and towards the end of the film, then the princes conveniently say that they don't want to go again. They don't want to go with this arranged marriage stuff either. They want to have a, they also want to be able to write the Chichilla, have control of their own fate. And I'm just like, well, that's convenient. Kind of just as convenient as Eleanor changing her mind about the whole arranged marriage thing, even though it was really important beforehand. On to show us. <clears throat> That uh, they also feel the same way, even though there was never a builder to tours. That's so yay! Bland and boring, more characters. Just great. Just, just great. Oh gosh. And the triplet princes are no better either. We we just know that they're rascals. They get themselves into hijinks and troubles and stuff, which doesn't really go anywhere. This well, yeah, I forgot about this one character named Maudie, which she's kind. I don't even know what her role is in this movie. Oh, she is a woman that's tr that literally is uh, a victim of the prince's um, hijinks for getting sweets and stuff. Because these old, they're just they honestly are just energetic boys who get into trouble, get away with murder, um, can easily get these sweet stuff from Maudie. And she's just she screams a lot, she's scared of stuff a lot, and yeah. So going back to what I said before about the rude humor from this movie, yeah, I don't like the rude humor at all. I've seen a lot of movies with rude humor of all kinds. I have. I mean, trust me, a lot of DreamWorks films have rude humor. That's why DreamWorks films, a lot of them, actually I think most of them, or even almost all of them, are indeed PG. Because of scary action sequences and rude humor. But this one feels so weird in this movie with the rude humor. Because it's honestly, it's not, the rude humor is not like it's funny. It's actually kind of disgusting. There's honestly two scenes that really disgust me. Actually, three scenes. Actually, now two scenes that really disgust me. There's one scene after, it was during the archery scene, where the three sons are um, shooting their arrows with Meredith's hand. We dingwall gets the bullseye. His dad is really happy. And then he lifts off his kilt and then shows it off. What under his coat, his ass, his bare naked ass, and I know that is there, and I know this is that is his bare naked ass because there's another scene when Eleanor and Merida escape that the and the men were stuck on the roof. They had to use their kilts to get down, and they were just showing their bare asses. So I know for damn sure that that um they got nothing underneath that those kilts, and he was just showing his naked old wrinkly ass. Ugh. Lord Dingwall, you are disgusting. And trust me, yeah, Lord McIntosh and McGovern were not having it. They were just, ugh. They, they were revolted. Ugh. And then also in the background in that scene, which I didn't really notice as a kid, 
There were children that cried. Oh my gosh, that was so terrible. So, so bad. And it's not even funny. It's so gross. And so, so there's another scene when the princes, when the princes later on the film, when they're already bear cubs, were helping to get the key back from Monty in order to release Merida from the room that her father locked her, locked her in to make sure she doesn't get hurt. Well, he's tracking down the, his uh, his wife. That's a bear that he did not know, that he doesn't believe that this is actually his wife. So the princess concoct their plan in order to like get the key back. And one of the princess princess literally jumps in and goes into the bosom of Marty in order to get the key because Marty thought it was smart to put the key there, which was really dumb on her part. But also really weird as the audience is like, what the hell did just happen? Did he, did this bear couple just, I'm like, yes, that actually happened. That really did just happen. Oh gosh. Poor comedy, very little character development. That at least I believe, that I don't think it was really real. I don't really believe a lot of the character development in the bonds here. That were formed. I, I don't really believe it. I, I I don't really feel it as much. I I just don't. Okay. I'm done with talking about the characters. But there's so much more I gotta talk about this film because I was just really curious and I really wanted to dig deep into this film at least as much as I can, at least I can find, starting off on Wikipedia and other and other sources. So yeah, just to let you know, I do use Wikipedia for my sources and stuff, but I also look at other stuff too. I just use Wikipedia as my base stuff, but you know, I got a lot of this information for Wikipedia, just to let y'all know. Okay, so let's talk about the setting. We don't really know that much as far as the actual setting of the film, so I decided to just see what inspired this setting of this film, since we don't actually get an actual explanation about the setting. Or at least the explanation is very brief. So, this movie is set in this fictional medieval kingdom that the clan Dumbrock is in, which is actually inspired by the Scotland Highlands, Scotland itself. And fun fact, the crew actually traveled to Scotland for inspiration. It's a medieval kingdom, but it doesn't feel like we explored this kingdom very much. Like I said, there's no actual real lore or background story between this with this kingdom and the other clans at all. We don't actually get how Clan Dumbrock, Macintosh, Dingwall, and MacGuffin actually form into this one kingdom. Heck, we don't actually get a name for the kingdom itself. We get the names of the clans, but we don't actually know the name of the actual kingdom itself. Like, are we supposed to assume that it's Scotland? That all these clans form a kingdom called Scotland? Is that what we're supposed to assume what this is? Because if so, that is not made clear. And I guess they just movies really trying to make me assume a lot of stuff. Or at least maybe theorize a lot of stuff because it's never explained. Ugh, and for people who don't really care about theories and headcans and all that stuff, then it's not going to make sense to them. <sighs> and then we have, like, like the games that talk, like, you know, to win Meredith's hand. It's loosely, it's really inspired by the Highland Games, which is pretty much like a Scottish Olympic Games, where the clan chief's sons must win and marry his hand, so yeah, that's just that. And the castle that inspired, this, the castle, the real castle called Don, Donatar Castle, it was actually an inspiration for the clan Dumbrock Castle. 
And there's also these standing pillars, the stone pillars, I mean, stone pillars, which are actually, were actually inspired and actually called in real life, that's in the Scottish Highlands, the Canalias Standing Stones. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I think it's pronounced Calanias, I think. I hope I pronounced it right. But I'm just going to go with this. So yeah, these standing stones. So this film is, is pretty much showing that these stones are important. They have some sort of fantasy lore importance. Because the first time we actually see these pill, pillars, um, these stone pillars, um, Agnes accidentally throws Merida because he stops before he gets to the center of the pillars. Merida's in the center of the pillars, and that's honestly where kind of gives this ominous sound. It sounds like, hey, beware of this place. This is like significantly, this is like important and stuff. But yet, it doesn't actually explain why that is. Like, Angus literally refuses to go into the middle of the, he doesn't want to go inside the pillars at all. He'd rather be on the outside of it than going inside of it. Now, I was trying to research these pillar, these stone, standing stones, if there's any like Scottish lore or a fairy tale, a folklore, mythology, with anything about these stone pillars, and honestly, I couldn't really find anything. If there is something, maybe I just missed something. If there is, please, someone let me know, because it keeps showing up, and it keeps showing this ominous, magical feeling, but yet it never shows or even explains why this is important. I don't know why this particular setting is important. I, I don't know. They never It's never explained. It's never shown or anything. It's honestly so frustrating how little I know about Scottish culture. This is a major thing about this film. This is featuring, this Meredith is actually the first and only Scottish princess, but I feel like I know little, little to nothing about Scottish culture, and this film doesn't really do much. I know nothing about Scottish culture. I don't know anything about Celtic folklore, mythology, or nothing. I learned not, absolutely nothing from this film. This film gave me nothing to learn about Scottish stuff. At all. Except they gave us stuff with like, like, um, they gave us some phrases in Gaelic and a Scottish accents and they have Celts and archery, even though it's not really exclusive to Scotland itself. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That, that, that's it. I, I, don't, I don't have anything else to say. <sighs> and then the landscapes throughout the film, it's from the Glen Affric. Honestly, it's just all this landscape stuff. And then I kind of talked a lot, I kind of talked a little bit about it, but I didn't really specify much on the Will of the Whips, because honestly, the film just briefly talks about it in the prologue of what they are, that the Whips lead people, like if you follow the Will of the Whips, then it leads you to your fate. That's pretty much it, which I guess is fine, but I kind of thought these whips would be more important, especially since they literally keep using the whips to show, um, they keep using the whips to lead Meredith into places, to the witch's cottage, to the ancient kingdom's ruins, back to, and then the whips use also are used for, to show where um, Mary's mom is. I swear, I feel like the will of the whips are really just plot devices in order to move this plot along. <sighs> I mean, by the plot, I mean the bear plot. 
That's pretty much it, actually. That's the only time we actually see the Will-O-Wisp. The prologue, which is a little bit of more due, because I guess that kind of fits more the bear plot, sort of. least since that's where they're introduced, anyways. And then we don't see them again until around 30-ish, 35 minutes-ish into the film. Then we see them again. Like, wow, I honestly kind of forget that you guys existed since the prologue. Okay. So, as someone who literally knows absolutely nothing, like I said before probably many times already, I know absolutely nothing about Scottish culture. So I decided to do a little research just to know, okay, what the hell is Will the Whip stuff? Like, is this stuff they made up or is this like a real, I don't want to say real, but like real or like some things that actually is believed in Scottish, in Scottish culture. And in fact, it actually is. Sort of. I mean, in literature, it is metaphorically, it, the will of the wiz metaphorically refers to a hope or a goal that leads one on, but is impossible to reach or something one finds sinister and weird. And according to a Cambridge dictionary, it's also an idiom for something that is impossible to get or achieve, to be out of your league. And to be honest, I find that quite hilarious because these will of the wiz in the movie are shown as plot divorces in order to move the plot along. So I'm like, okay. If you search up the Will of the West and you find what they actually kind of mean a little bit, and you see this film, you're going to be confused. So I'm like, wait a minute. If the Will of the Whips are meant to be referred to like a hope or a goal that's never achieved, then does that mean Meredith will never, should have never achieved the goal of changing her mom back into a bear? Never achieve of actually having freedom and independence? Because if that's the case, then that's totally not how it went in the film at all. They're just shown as like, oh yeah, they lead you to her fate. And they're really just a plot device. And that's really kind of sad. Yeah. Kind of sad. Huh. That's what they actually are, at least in literature, and it is an idiom. And even in just, that's just how it is in Scottish culture, at least that's what's believed to be what it is. But, Wow. If that's what they represent, then they are not represented well at all in this film. Hmm. Really makes you wonder, huh? Okay. So, I talked about the characters. I talked about the setting. At least what inspired the setting, since there isn't really much that is actually known within the film itself, because it's never explained at all. Or even just shown. Even if it's not explained through exposition, it's never really shown to us how it works, but oh well. So I'll just briefly talk about the animation. There's not really much really to talk about. Because the animation is pretty good. It's decent, I feel like. It's not as detailed or as high definition or anything like that like it is now in modern Pixar films. It's not always as beautiful. I mean, it has, it has some nice landscapes and stuff. It looks, it look, forest stuff looks nice just not as pretty as like modern Pixar films but it looks pretty good though for 2012 although it's not as colorful or vibrant or anything although I do like how they animated Merida's hair like her hair really shows that it's really curly and stuff but I wouldn't say it's as good as like later ones especially like in modern Disney films either like we've seen better it still holds up though animation wise so you know it's fine Merida Mordu's design is still menacing so, you know, it, it's fine. It works. But I also feel like the background characters look very similar. 
I don't know. I don't. I feel like there weren't really a lot of unique character designs because honestly, everyone either has brown, kind of black, brownish black hair, blonde hair, or red hair. That's kind of it. But then again, it is said to be ancient medieval kingdom, so I guess you don't really have much to work with. You can't go with all. Can't go all out with different colors, but hey, it's fictional, so you know you can really do anything. But whatever. So. I also want to talk about the theme, or I guess themes, in this movie, which really isn't a lot. I think there's only one real theme with this movie, and it's really focusing between the relationship of Merida and Eleanor. Mother-daughter, really. But it's a theme that they fail so bad. Now, I'll try my best to explain. After everything I talked about, about Merida and Eleanor's characters. So, I feel like this film was trying to portray the importance of communication. The problem is they didn't communicate that theme really well. Well, not really communication, more like listening, which, honestly, I don't feel like that really worked that well, because the only time that they really started listening to each other was when they're on their way to the ancient kingdom's ruins. That's the actual only in real time they really started listening to each other. But it doesn't connect with what happened in the first act because the real conflict was the fact that Merida wants to wants to be free and independent, but her mom is trying to show trying to make sure she sticks to tradition and and the values of the kingdom and the rules and the customs. But it's never talked about. They never actually talk or listen to those perspectives at all. Even when, and that's what makes the whole thing about Eleanor suddenly changing her mind about it so egregious because it doesn't make sense. There was no buildup with that moment. So that moment is just half-assed and ruined. <sighs> makes, makes, it doesn't make any sense. There's no time that they actually really start listening to each other as far as what they really want from each other and listen, like nothing, just nothing. And it was opportunity for such things, but they didn't. They just backed away from it. And another thing too, which I guess I never really talked about, but you know, like I said, this movie is called Brave. Why is this movie called Brave? There's no actual theme of bravery here, because I don't think anyone really struggles with it. I don't see anyone actually struggling to be brave. Especially Merida as the protagonist. She doesn't struggle to be brave. That's actually her thing. Is that what the movie is? To show that she is brave? Because if that's the case, then it really kind of makes it it's poorly titled. And I really don't like this title at all. Brave is really a dumb one-worded title for a movie that doesn't really fit this movie. I, I don't see it. Which is why I actually really prefer the original title for this movie. Which I better start actually talking about the production history and the reception for this film when it came out in 2012. So let's start with, who are the directors again? Yeah, there are two directors that, um, there's some... <sighs> the production for this film has a lot of insidious behind the scenes. But let's start at the very beginning. Let's start with a woman named Brenda Chapman, who actually started the process for this film in the mid-2000s. 
It wasn't until 2008, April of 2008, that it was announced from Pixar that there would be a new film. And the film will be called The Bear and the Bow. I know, if you, we, since we've been through this entire stuff and time of the story, yeah, it makes you think, like, The Bear and the Bow? Huh, so they really were intending to go the bear route, huh? But trust me, I'll get to the original thing and all that, and why she kind of, why she really specifically went with that title. And like I said, also said before, Brenda Chapman was the first and still is the only female director for a feature-length film in Pixar's history. The only one, and that was back in 2012. And what year are we in? Oh yeah, 2021. Oh boy. Time has flown and not much has changed, huh? So Chapman drew inspiration for this film from her relationship with her daughter at the time. And originally the movie, The Bear and the Bow, was supposed to be about a fairy tale about the relationship between a mother and her daughter. But, I mean, she wanted, yeah, like a fairy tale. She wanted to be a fairy tale, kind of like Hans Christian Andersen and like the Brothers Grimm. But for some reason, which she still hasn't really said how, but she was fired by John Lasseter over creative differences in October 2010 a couple years before the film was meant to be released. And honestly, Chapman was devastated and disappointed that she was pulled off a project she was passionate about. And it was her story. She was originally the director, and she, this is her story. This is what she wanted to do. This is the movie that she really wanted to do that's all under her control, that, her, that she wrote and everything. And... Mind you, she actually has a pretty good track record with directing pretty good, actually even really great cinematic movie. I mean, not cinematic movies, um, animated movies. You know, this is film that came out in 1998 in DreamWorks Animation. You know, that was meant to actually be the first film from DreamWorks when John, when um, Jeffrey Katzenberg was starting his own company away from Disney, and uh, but who was uh, pushed back to being the second film released. And, and then Ants was released first to compete with A Bug's Life. You know, this is a movie called that, you know, came in 1998. She was the director. It's, uh, oh yeah, it's called The Prince of Egypt, which is a biblical retelling of Moses' story from the book of Exodus in the Bible. <clears throat> so, yeah, The Prince of Egypt, which is honestly, a, which I truly think is actually a fact, that is a cinematic masterpiece, the best film coming from DreamWorks for Mulgrew as of today, and yet, the, John Lasseter fired her over creative differences, and we still don't know what those creative differences were. We don't know really what actually really led up to her actually just being fired and pulling off the project. No, we don't know. She doesn't want to talk about it. And for the fact that it's so egregious and devastating to the point that she doesn't even want to go back to Pixar anymore, it kind of, I think it really speaks for itself that, yeah, it was really either messed up or just really, just cruel. So, yeah, she was fired, and she was replaced with Mark Andrews. Now, even though she was fired, she and Mark Andrews are still credited to this film. So, there was actually this interview that I got from this um, article talking about how she was devastated and how she still... Happy on how the term, how the film turned out, even though she's still a little 
it's still a little bittersweet because she thought it might be a little bit better if she was the director instead of a man named Mark Andrews. Uh, and that her vision still remained the same, but yet there was a lot of changes that she didn't really want to be in the film. Like, for example, one thing, she wanted the film to be set in winter. Because she was really sticking with the whole bear twist and the, um, and the relationship between mom and, and mom and daughter. But it was supposed to be like in sudden winter so that when her mother is turned back into a human, it can become sunny and warm for to show that transition that was impactful and magical. Which, not gonna lie, I think would have been kind of a little bit better. You know, it kind of would have been changed of setting. It would actually probably look really pretty. Who knows? I don't know. I like looking at the forest and stuff in, in winter. It looks pretty nice to me. Especially when it's animated really well. And also, there would have been a lot more significance and details with the curse itself. First of all, she's like, hold up. It's not supposed to be about bears. This whole bear stuff, this whole bear fixation. Uh-uh. That was never the intention. The point with the whole curse is that this was this is actually the real wish with Merida. Her wish, her wish was make my mother more like my dad. Now, the original idea with Frick is that he's supposed to be more bear-like. So, still, I mean, it's not very as specific, but a lot more specific than change my mom to change my fate. I'll tell you that much. A lot more specific than that. But yeah, make my mother more like my dad. So, since her dad is a lot more bearish, then her mom would came, came more bearish. And to the point that she really looks like a bear. Since her dad was supposed to look a lot more like a bear. A, gen, a red-headed bear, but nonetheless. I'm like, oh! When I found this out, I was like, oh! This is why! Okay. Okay. This is why we... Okay. The bear twist at least makes a lot more sense in that regard. But like... I don't know. That's the only stuff I can find as far as like the original idea for the project with bear, the bear and the bow. I wish that I could learn more what the really the idea was and how it's gonna change throughout the entire film. I don't know. It honestly, it sounds like it was gonna be better. Not gonna lie, it really sounds like the movie would have been better if we went with Chapman's idea for this film. And also, Andrews, what he did to change the film. He shifted the focus on the fairy tale aspect to more Merida's relationship with her mother. Which, honestly, I don't really believe because the way that the movie turned out, eh, it didn't really look like it really focuses on that relationship. Well, it looks like it did because there was a big conflict between the two of them in the first act. But then after that, uh, she turns into a bear. That makes no damn sense. That's entirely the main character's fault, but she really pretends as if it's not, which is still dumb, which makes the character really unlikable. And just bratty and whiny so yeah makes us really think about all this stuff <sighs> it's so disappointing in that regard that honestly this movie could have been better you know with just some minor improvements here and there this could have been a lot better it could have been a decent pixar film decent or actually good even who knows i don't know i will never know because that movie will never exist But despite all of the production issues and change of leadership, and as far as direction to this film, Brave was actually a financial success in the box office. 
The budget for this film was $185 million, which, not gonna lie, that is really, really expensive. I mean, <laughs> if you're getting close to $200 million for an animated film, that is honestly a lot of money. And I can see why, because in two, because actually that was a time where Pixar was doing, um, we had to shift in um, animation equipment, but they used different, um, a different software for their animation. So because this was at the point since we ended 2010s, and Disney and Pixar's history that hey, we were doing less 2D animated stuff because Chapman, like I said, she was doing the Prince of Egypt. I think that was the last time she yeah she was also doing a lot more 2d animated stuff as well so like she was really more um she was more skilled with 2d animation stuff and then that's why it took a long time for her to really adjust with the 3d animated stuff because to make sure it looks good and then and, and all that stuff so that's why for her i guess it took and also for her she spent like six years in this film before they literally took her off the project so yeah imagine like i said before all that work all this hard and effort only for her to be fired and be taken out the project. <sighs> I mean, I'm kind of thankful that she is credited to this project because for the fact that they really did well, like I said, 185 million as the budget. The box office, 540.4 million dollars worldwide. That is honestly a lot, and I mean a lot of money worldwide. Like that's like you. That's a financial success out of the gate. And to the point that Brave was nominated and won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature Film for 2012. This film, Brave, as a mess of a film it is, with bad character development, little character arcs, um, pointless characters, and an protagonist is actually really bad. Not really a good example, to be honest, in my opinion. This film won against Frank and Weenie, Heron Norman, The Pirates Band of Misfits, and Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, remember, Wreck-It Ralph by Disney lost to Pixar's Brave. Let that sink in. If you were a friend of Wreck-It Ralph and you heard, and you watched this movie, let's say, in the theaters, right? At the time, you were a big fan of Wreck-It Ralph and you hear it got nominated for Best Animated Feature Award but yet it lost to a Pixar film that actually doesn't really measure up to good characters, very imaginative, creative worlds, and lovable characters with good character arcs and everything. It lost. Record Ralph lost to Brave. That is really sad. That's honestly really sad. Like, wow. Just wow. Honestly, I'm very surprised that Brave was, that Brave won this Oscar for 2012. And Rec was nominated, but didn't win. That's really sad. Damn. And according to the critic reception, um, Rotten Tomatoes uh, has 78% from the critics and audience is 75%, which is, I guess, is kind of average. It's kind of good, but not that terrible. I mean, Brave as a whole really isn't bad compared to other movie studio standards but if you're really but this is a Pixar film so you really have to compare it to Pixar standards because it is their film and compared to other much better more lovable more likable protagonists and better character arts 
this film cannot compare to any to many of Pixar's filmography. It it just doesn't. It's just it really doesn't. And it's really sad because it could have been a lot better. <sighs> now, this movie has a lot of potential to be better. Like I said, there was, as the original idea, it could have been better. Even though I don't really know more else other than it was going to be a fairy tale, which kind of reminds me more of Disney's wheelhouse, but I guess it's a fairy tale with a twist, and I guess the twist is Pixar, so maybe it be, would have been better. Who knows? And I'll never know anymore. It is still an earnest attempt, but it's just failed to, it didn't execute really well. Could have been, like I said, could have been better if John Lasseter did not fire Brandon Chapman and maybe let her just do her vision. I mean, if you've seen The Prince of Egypt, you could tell there was little to no studio interference and she she directed this film to be what it is, a cinematic masterpiece. I don't know, I don't think, maybe Brave would have been a cinematic masterpiece. Maybe. I don't really know if it would have been, but at least it would have been a good movie. I think it would have been a good movie, but who knows. But I feel like there's things that you can change a lot with this film in order to improve it, or at least make it good or even decent. So I have like two ways that you could change this film. This is just what I think anyways. Uh, let's see. Sorry, man, my throat just gets dry. Talking for a long time. Okay. One way. Focus on the marriage plot and how that affects Merida and Eleanor's relationship, since they have very accusing views on marriage in general. Like, the first act of this film is really showing how Merida does not conform to the idea of being a princess at all. Like, at all. And how I mean, Eleanor's view on princess doesn't is not exactly like that either. It's very opposing. And really, if we focus on the marriage plot, we could have learned more, learned, uh, could have learned more regarding at least Eleanor's backstory and like how she really, how she came to this conclusion of what it means to be a princess. Like again, it would be going more with the lore behind the kingdom and the clans and they came together. But you know, I mean, there would have been time. I truly believe there would have been a lot of time to do it. In fact, the movie could have actually been a commentary on gender roles, like playing around the conventions of a fairy tale, since the original idea was supposed to be a fairy tale. I think that would have been the twist. That would have been the Pixar's twist to subvert your expectations of what it means to be a princess. Keep this in mind. This film came out in 2012, and as far as Disney's uh, filmography, Disney had a whole thing with princesses in like old Disney and like Disney Renaissance, and the Lost Princess film. Before, and the princess film before Brave was The Princess and the Frog in 2009 from Disney. So, yeah, honestly, they really could have just done a convention, a, a subversive, a subversive fairy tale. That could have, that honestly could have been what it was. But then, honestly, that if they did that, but not like, remember, I'm saying subverting it, but still kind of going a lot, but like subverting your expectation of being princess, but still going as a fairy tale, not like a parody. Not like in Shrek, like the Shrek series where they do a parody of fairy tales. No, like try to like, like this movie could have been like going along as a fairy tale. Like you ex kind of expect, but then also show you, you know, this movie is going to subvert your expectations of what you think a what it means to be a princess, you know? 
you know, you can still have your headstrong princess, but maybe not as one -y. Maybe someone who's a little bit considerate. You know, maybe also helpful. Maybe some more passions and goals. Besides just wanting to be free and independent. Which, yeah, that's nice and all, but it's actually really basic and bland. Like, think of a lot of other Disney princesses. And it really sucks because this is this Brave is literally the only film in princess filmography that features a princess. They have not done one since Brave. And honestly, this whole princess thing is more Disney. But for the fact it came from Pixar, that's already subverting your expectations already. Because, like, hold up. Princess? Isn't that a Disney thing? Exactly. Especially in 2012. When people were already kind of getting tired of the whole, at least the musical part, and for the fact this movie is not going to be a musical, yeah. In my version, there will be no, there'll be no musical at all. I mean, maybe you can have, like, you have the songs, right? The original songs. Don't like pop, no pop songs, no, no popular songs at all. Please, no. Like, make this, like, use songs that are original, that really fit and tie into um, Scottish culture, even just Celtic culture. But I would prefer more specifically with Scottish to be honest. And yeah, really putting a commentary of gender roles, roles and the importance of being a princess and the role of a princess to a kingdom and to herself. Really put an emphasis on that, you know? So yeah, um, this would, this version would definitely make you think of a classic Disney film with a more memorable score. However, subverting your expectations with a princess who has a counter ideology on the conventions of being a princess. Okay, so that's one version. Another version. Build up the Legend of Mordu. If you really want to stick with the whole bear twist thing, then you got to build up this Legend of Mordu in this ancient kingdom. And how that, and how he's actually an active presence and an active threat in this film. And how it puts a strain on the kingdom and Merida's relationship with her mother. The bear twist could be like an inverse because Merida would try to find clues to Mordu's weakness while Eleanor tries to make plans with the lords about Mordu in order to like, because she is very diplomatic. That's what Eleanor is. She's a diplomatic queen. She actually is pretty much the boss. There's Fergus, but he doesn't really do much as he's a king. All he does is fight and defend. But Eleanor? No. She's the one who actively is in charge of, like, this kingdom, really. She's the one who makes the rules. She's the one who makes the calls. She's the one who sets everything up. That's what she does. It would have been a more extreme between Merida and Eleanor's relationship in the way of, like, oh, we have this active threat. And how Merida wants to, like, like, find clues and go on an adventure to stop this threat. Which, honestly, I felt like that was the idea uh, for this film in the trailer. It really kind of built up, like, Merida was this warrior princess. That she's going off on a quest to stop this beast named Mordu. Like, I, I thought that would have been the, the idea. But, no. That's that that's not what this film the film actually is. But I feel like that that's this other version... The sec my second version would have been more focused towards that. So yeah, Merida finds clues to find Mordu's weakness in order to stop him. While Eleanor's trying to find ways to build defenses along with Fergus and stuff, but also being diplomatic with the lords. Making it like more action adventure with fantasy elements. And also, the Wisp could also be like a constant character with a quick lore reference. Like actually a referencing to like how the Wisps are really important and how it's actually a well-known fact about what the whips are, you know? And how they actually have a personality. Like, they, like maybe each whips is different. A community of whips. 
that actively, like, trick people into their fate kind of thing, you know? I don't know, like, better utilize them if that's what you want to, if you want to use them, or if not, just get rid of it. And also, this version will also have, could have more references to Scott's culture, since, again, I'm not that knowledgeable about. The stuff I found out was just quick searches here and there. But for people, but I think it would be really great, though, for, to, like, really ask Scottish people, like, people actually from Scotland, who maybe currently live there, or people who've been there, or immigrated from there, whatever, that, you know, to learn more about the culture a lot more, and really implement that to the film, since this is the first and only Scottish princess. Then again, I don't feel, a lot of films don't tend to do that, but they tend to do it sometimes with other, other films and stuff, as far as the culture, but they don't want to heavily reference it to alienate the American audience. But hey, educate the American audience. Sometimes we be dumb like that, okay? We need to learn. Sheesh, give us a movie that's entertaining, uh, aspiring, and also um, educational. Come on now. Just saying. Not a bad idea. <sighs> but these are merely my ideas on what, I, what could have been improved, not gonna lie. So, in conclusion, Brave is a wasted potential princess film with an earnest attempt to be good, but ultimately failed to do so. It really is just a mediocre children's film that I do not really recommend adults to watch, since there really isn't much, much substance for an older audience. And I will give this film, let's see, what score would I give this film? Hmm. I will give this film three out of 10 stars. I mean, 10. Yeah, 3 out of 10. Yeah, so as far as stars wise, like out of 5 stars, that would have been 1.5. Yeah, that would have been 1.5 stars out of 5. But yeah, 3 out of 10. That's what this film is. And that's really, really bad. Oh boy. That will be it for today. If you want to uh, give me some suggestions for some movies to watch or some movies to talk about or maybe what you thought about my podcast, then you can uh, contact me through uh, my Instagram, which is city underscore girl underscore writer. Or you could um, tweet me at in Twitter, um, Ananike underscore writer with the number eight. And yeah, that's the way to pretty much contact me through social media. And, you know, give me some idea, you know, tell me what y'all think about, um, about this podcast, the things I talk about, you know, give me your thoughts kind of thing, you know, and I see you in the next episode.